Have you ever struggled with fear in your life? Have you ever had the thought that I am not brave? Well, I'm here today to tell you that you are. Welcome to the Brave Podcast. I'm your host, Alexis Newland, and I'm so glad that you're tuning in here today. Each week, a friend and I get together and share stories of what makes them brave. So sit back, relax, enjoy your favorite cup of coffee or tea, and get ready for some engaging conversation. And remember, no matter what your story is, you are brave. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Brave Podcast. I believe this is episode number 68. Cannot believe I've done 68 podcast episodes. Wow. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Just a few things. This will be the last episode for May. And then there's going to be a break. I'm going to take a two-month break to just kind of refresh and edit the content that I recorded months ago and catch up on that stuff and also get back to writing. I'm a writer at heart and podcasting has really chipped away at my writing. And so I want to get back to doing that. So I hope to write a little bit during my podcasting break. So there will be no new episodes for June and July, but we'll be back in August with some awesome brand new guests. So on to today's guest. Today's guest was so fun to talk to. Her name is Kim Ledgerwood, and she shares her journey with addiction and how she went through that, getting help after being a police officer and going through PTSD to now being a Christian and saved. And she just shares her whole entire testimony. It was absolutely beautiful, and I loved getting to talk with her and see her journey over the past two years of the changes that God has made in her life. I think you guys will absolutely love my interview with Kim. I had such a great time chatting with her. I love hearing testimonies and seeing how God can really change someone into someone completely different. And it's just beautiful. So I think you guys are going to love this one. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. And without further ado, here's my interview with Kim Ledgerwood. Okay, Kim, I will have you introduce yourself. Um, you're listening to the Brave Podcast, and I'm on today with Kim, and your last name is Ledgerwood, correct? Yep. Perfect. Got it. All right, Kim, tell everybody why you're awesome. <laughs> well, I'm awesome because I'm a survivor. I've spent the last 30 years as a police officer, retiring as a staff sergeant just recently, about three weeks ago, actually. Oh, wow. And um, with, yeah, with the intent of my new entrepreneurship with my water business. So I have two grown adult daughters as well, 25 and 23. I am happily single. I live in, we say, Newmarket, Ontario. And yeah, so I'm just enjoying having my mental health back at this point because I've had a really bad last two years, but actually the best thing that ever happened to me. I hear you. All right. So going into mental health issues, was any of that from the last 30 years of being a police officer or was it just already was there and you weren't really aware of it? I was hired as a police officer the month after I turned 20 years old and I did have some traumatic things happen before that in regular life, but the majority is um, all work-related, post-traumatic stress disorder, cumulative stress. PTSD I've been diagnosed with and um, anxiety and not diagnosed with depression, but there were moments when, yeah, I've gone into a deep depression. 
How did that affect your work? Did you recognize at the time that you were having issues as a police officer when you were dealing with the PTSD and the anxiety? And how did you move through that and still do your job? <laughs> it's very weird because now that I look back, I can see, right? I can, yeah. I can recognize the signs and symptoms because I've learned so much about it. I, how can I say, you know, there's something not right, but you ignore it because oh, yeah. that's what we do. It's a thing officers do. The majority of us is um, suck it up buttercup attitude and you move on so you could imagine up to that point like I had gotten my diagnosis I, I don't even know seven or eight years ago and I was ordered off work two years ago due to uh, my mental health that had kind of come to a peak and I had gone to a radio call that just put me over the edge it was like the straw that broke the camel's back okay and then I started to really go downhill yeah And I didn't know what was going on. But yes, I I was not well for years before, but I was functioning like you wouldn't know. You know what I mean? I wasn't allowing it to interfere, but it was now that I look back. What did that downhill spiral look like for you? Hard to explain because I've never experienced it before. It was um, very dark. And the word that I I had never been able to come up with the word to describe the feeling that you get, it was dread. Dread is the feeling that I can explain that I don't ever want to feel that again. And with dread comes the suicidal thoughts. So it was really, really bad times. That's a really heavy thing to go through. And to be at a job constantly where I can imagine as a police officer, you're constantly in high stress situations and kind of facing things that are where your life is in danger or someone else's life is in danger so constantly you're being exposed to that stress it's probably hard for you to kind of heal in the moment yes exactly you're hyper vigilant is what it is so you're always on guard regardless of what you do and then that spills into your home life as well but again I mean I recognized that if I was short with my kids, if I lo- like my temper would go from zero to a hundred. I had no patience. My empathy was zero. My sympathy was gone. I didn't like people. Hmm. When I went home and people are hanging out in their garages with their beer with their neighbors and all this, I didn't want to talk to any neighbors. Didn't socialize with any of them. Basically isolated a lot. Yeah. Before I got sick, I... I I would accept invitations and buy tickets to events, but then I'd wait till the last minute and I would cancel them Hmm. (laughs) because I just wanted to be by myself and alone. And that was before I actually was ordered off work. So things were not ever fantastic or great. The signs and symptoms of my disorder were present throughout my whole life, Yeah, but I just took it as, oh, you know, okay, that's just me. I'm doing okay. I was successful. I was able to accomplish things. I looked like I had it all on the outside until I didn't. <laughs> mm, that's a hard place to be in. And then was there any stigma around having the diagnosis of PTSD and having the anxiety being within the police force? I didn't tell anybody. Oh, um, okay. How I got the diagnosis is I had been seeing a psychologist on and off for years, but usually she had helped me with relationships, right? We didn't really get into my PTSD or anything. And then, and I didn't have a diagnosis 
but I had gone to her because I felt um, like I was losing my mind. This was before the incident. So this was like seven years ago, eight years ago. I just felt like I wasn't me. I couldn't think. It was like I was two people almost, not Mm -hmm. schizophrenia, not voices talking to me, just like I had to be one person at work, but then I was this other person, but I didn't want to be the person that I was because I had become something that I wasn't because of my exposure and my protection, my armor that I was putting on, so to speak, to protect me from more trauma, right? Yeah, I hear you. Um, so I had gone to, into her to go, but I didn't know any of this, but I just went into her to go, I think I'm losing my mind. I think I have early dementia or something. I was only like 45, <laughs> but I really felt, wow. And she said, I think we should test you for PTSD. What and I was like, like, oh, okay. So it wasn't something I brought up. She okay. brought it up. I did, there's some, there's written tests that you do, right? And obviously, I mean, you don't have to do a test to know that I had it. And any officer that's been doing any policing, I mean, not sitting at a desk for their career, then they most likely have that, the disorder. You have to, because in a day, my God, you could go to three, you can go to five, you can go to nine calls that were all critical incidents that were awful, you know, Mm -hmm. see, smell, touch, like feel. You're not watching this stuff on television. We're living it. We're there with the families. We're there with the victims. We're there with people that are just pouring their hearts out in emotional distraught. And and we got to keep it together. So when you do that so many times, eventually you have to give up. You start losing feeling because you've hardened yourself so much to those situations because you have to because nobody wants a police officer to break down and cry in front of them. We're supposed to be the ones that are the the rock when you're in trouble. You know, and I'm talking everything. It, it could be things involving children, you know, deaths, like any death. And I'm not talking about murders, but there's that too, like horrible scenes, but just, you know, your grandmother passing away, like mm-hmm. just, you know, we go to those calls, like things like there just lots of not great stuff okay, yeah. that we're exposed to. And it just compounds. You just take it. And like I said, this stuff could happen multiple times in a day. And you've got a seven-day shift in front of you. And then they give you five days off. Well, you should be doing something about every all the exposure you had in the seven days prior on your five days off. But nobody does. Yeah. And then during those days, I mean, it used to be that all the police officers would just get together and we'd go out drinking. And yeah. you'd talk about your days and you'd get it out that way. But you're not really getting it out because you're drinking. Yeah. It's That's not- right. That's it. You got it. It's not a healthy way to deal with the stuff that we see, but unless, but officers as well, we're very stubborn because we're the caretakers, very hard to admit um, that we need help. And then even harder for some of them to ask. So when I got my diagnosis, I didn't tell anybody because it wasn't something you go and tell people. I was like, okay. And I was supposed to work on it with her, but I did what I do and I avoided it because it wasn't nothing was at the forefront you know like that it was too much for me exactly um, until I, don't, I, I think five years later when I had gone out to a call it was one of the biggest critical incidents in Toronto I was very familiar with the area because I grew up in the area ironically yeah. and when I went to the scene there were still people being loaded up in ambulances and people scared out of their minds looking through storefronts. The ETF were there with the suspect who had been shot. There was scenes of 
just like gunfight scenes, like the aftermath. There was officers still checking the areas for for live gunmen still maybe out there if there was more than one suspect. It was just, it was surreal. It was like, as soon as I got out of my car, I had left my body. And I was sort of in a movie because it was surreal is what it was. And I'd never had that happen before. And then I uh, carried, I think it was at that scene for about an hour and a half. I was a a supervisor at the time. So the rest of my platoon had come and they all had their duties of what they had to do. And it happened that I was on call that week. I was a member of the critical incident response team. Okay. That was a volunteer position that you get much training for and It's actually to be on call to go out to these sorts of situations when you're called out and make sure that the officers know where they can get help if they need help psychologically, because sometimes some of them are going on days off. So you don't know what's going to happen. Everybody gets affected by scenes differently. So our, our job or my job as that volunteer was to make sure that officers had the right numbers had a brochure if any you experience any of this signs and symptoms in the next few days you know call a doctor this and that right so I was called out for that and that was like a double whammy that night because then I had to go to all the hospitals with another officer and a I think she was a counselor to make sure because all the officers that had first arrived on scene with the victims had Mm -hmm. rushed to the hospitals So I think we went to five different hospitals in the downtown area seeking out the officers and uh, to make sure they were okay. And there was just one, one, uh, one, we were in an ICU with two officers and there was one victim who was in the ICU at that time and she was a young female. And I looked over at her and I had a flashback to another scene that was very upsetting to me that had happened. I I think it was 2005, which was a Another downtown incident where a young 16-year-old or 15-year-old lost her life senseless by a gun. She was just in the crossfire of a gang fight, okay? okay, right by the Eaton Center. So as soon as I looked over and I had that flashback, I started to tear up and, and I had to turn back to the officers to finish the conversation. I had to suck it up because I, I can't have tears in my eyes, right? Yeah. So everybody was on overtime. I left. I went home and then I'm on, I'm on days off right? For five days. And I knew I was not right. I knew I was not, there was something wrong with me. So what did I do? I proceeded to drink Hmm. and numb that whole week, like an obsessive amount. And then I went back into work on the weekend. And after day two, I was like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm messed up. I have to admit that there is something here that isn't right with me. Again, though, still, I did not pick up the phone and call a doctor or tell anybody. What I did was call in sick. So I didn't go to work for a week. And what did I do? I drank the week away again, right? And then I would have been on days. So this was a cycle for about four months. I had taken off chunks of sick, which I knew was directly related to that incident because this didn't happen before that, you know? And then until I was told to make an appointment with my doctor, so again, that same doctor that gave me the diagnosis, I made an appointment. I got to see her in the December. So now it was four months after the incident. And within 15 minutes of the meeting, she said, yeah, you're not going back to work until I tell you you are. And that devastated me. I can imagine. I've been working. Yeah, I've been working since I was 13. 
And I've always had two jobs at that too. I've always had a side hustle. I've been a single mom. I've been a not a workaholic, but I'm not afraid of hard work and, yeah. and always worked. Like I've been the breadwinner. So to tell me that I couldn't, I was shocked. Like I really didn't expect that to happen. I thought, okay, I'll see her, you know, while I'm working kind of thing. But no. And the reason for that was because they didn't want me to get re-injured. Oh, I hear you. Right? Yeah. So I thought that was just going to be for a month or so. And it wound up being for two years that I was off. And when you hear the story, there was good reason. Like I wasn't, I wasn't whistling Dixie while I was off for two years. Yeah. I had, there was a lot of hard work to do and I did it and I've come out the other side and I'm here now, but from, do you want to hear this, me to go yes. on? Oh yeah. I am enthralled in your okay. story. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I see her, she tells me I'm not going to go to work. I'm, I'm like, I'm shocked. I leave her and now I'm, I'm to see her weekly. Right. And I'm off work. So and everything was fine that way. And a claim was put in through WSIB, who were awesome. I have to say, I've had no problems with them. So now I'm off. And now I have to work on me, which is my least favorite thing to do. Yeah, true story. <laughs> it's really like, oh, it's the hardest thing to do, really. Yes. <laughs> so she tells me that I should go see an addictions counselor which of course it took me like a month before I actually made, I had every excuse in the book for that one. Right. Yeah. Until I finally went and made an appointment and that was free, right. You don't even have to pay for that. And it's an awesome, awesome program. I got hooked up with a beautiful woman who really helped me. I enjoyed talking to her. So I had both of them, but what was I doing when I wasn't with them, which was, I was only with them one hour a week. Well, what I was doing now, now I don't have to work. Now I have all the time in the world for my addictions, right? And which I did. So now we're rolling into January and I was at an appointment with the doctor and I made sure I always made my appointments 10 o'clock in the morning so that I could go home and then drink. Mm. Because if it was in the afternoon, well, I got to drink as soon as I get up. So how am I going to get there? So that was my ploy. So I always made my appointments early. And then one time she said, Kim, I did not. And I, I was honest with her and I told her everything. She said, Kim, I did not tell you to be off work so that you could partake in your addictions. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? I'm, I live alone. Nobody's there to tell me I can't do anything or I shouldn't be doing something. I have the money. I have the means and I have the time now. And like n- nothing had changed to the fact that I didn't want to when I was sober, I didn't want to feel that way because there's yeah. something wrong with me. I feel not right. I feel awful, like off, you know, off. So I went home and I remember sitting on my couch and this was January and in my spot, which I no longer have that couch because every time I look at the couch, it reminds me of the spot that I sat in where I would have my alcohol and my drug of choice. And I started smoking cigarettes in the house too. And I'm like, what's going on with me? Cause mm-hmm. I'm breaking all of my rules, but I couldn't stop every day. I would say, I'm not going to do this. And I did it. And every night I would say the next day, I'm not going to do this. And every night, and every day I would still do it. Yeah. Could not stop. It, it, and I wasn't an unintelligent woman. I, I was a woman who was proud, determined, and successful usually with everything she tried. So the fact that I couldn't do this, I knew I had a problem and I knew I was dying. I knew I was killing myself. Yeah. And, and I was isolating and not wanting anybody to come to the door. Getting to that point where 
you don't care about yourself anymore, like not showering for three days because I don't care. I didn't care. And nobody's coming to see me anyways. Who cares? Well, all these things are not normal, of course. And then I looked up and I said, God, I need I need your help here. (laughs) I thought I had a relationship with God. I believed in God, but I never taught when I would pray now and then I prayed for other people. I never asked him for anything for myself. I never did ever until this time. And I said, Hey, can you help me please? Because I don't have anybody to help me and I need your help. Mm. And then that was it. There was no ray of sunshine or God said, yes. It was like, I knew what I had to do when I went and saw the doctor and the next appointment, when I saw her, I said, I need to be locked up and go to a rehab because I can't do this by myself. I need rules. I need regulations. I need to be treated like a child, basically. Yeah. Because my brain was not in control anymore of what this was doing. So she agreed with me. And then I got into one of the best rehabs in Ontario. Well, sorry, in Canada. People from all over Canada go there. So my date, I went in May. And I had no idea what to expect, right? Could you imagine yeah. you these things on television, right? Yeah, it, it's totally, I used to work in rehab as a therapist. Oh, okay. And yeah, most of the patients, a lot of them, there was just all walks of life, people who are homeless to people who are professionals. And it's humbling to say, I need help, no matter where your station is in life. And to see other people who also are in the same station as you are still struggling, it was just a, it's, Addiction affects everybody. It doesn't matter rich, poor. It can get anyone. It doesn't matter. It's an equal opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not prejudice. It's not prejudice. It's not. <laughs> and you saw that and you would it, just, it just blow my mind. You'd see this person, like you said, on the outside, they look perfect. But on the inside, this one guy, an alcoholic for 30 years. And he's like, I find this side no more. And I would have never, just looking at him, you would never guess that. So it's just amazing how addiction can affect everyone. Oh yeah. Are you kidding? Oh yeah. So I go, right. I, and I drank and did my drug of choice, like nobody's business right up until whatever midnight, the night before I had to go and check into the yeah. Monday at eight 30, drove there, parked my car across the street, went in with, you're only allowed one suitcase. Okay. And they give you rules of what you can bring and what you can't. And I knew you're there for two weeks solid once you're in there. And then if you're good, they allow you to go home on the weekends. Okay. But you come back at a certain time, right? And there's rules when you go home. So I knew I was there for two weeks. Anyways, went into the admin place, got checked in. They give you a card with your picture on it. And then they take me to this area that's called um, the detox area. Yeah. So you're in that area for seven to 10 days. So people can actually detox from their... DOCs or alcohol and it varied everybody was in there for different things but it's basically a hospital wing mm-hmm. so you're sharing a room I shared a room with a 26 um, year old jail guard from Windsor wow and she, yeah and she'd been a cop for one year before that I'm like when did you find time to do all this you're only 25 right so there was some deep-rooted stuff with her as well we had oh my god the array of people so these are the people, like, there's always people coming and there's always people going, right? Mm-hmm. So I yeah. could be there two days and somebody's just coming in on the first day. Like, it's always a rotation. It's not like you're in a class and it starts here 
and then we all graduate and it ends there. No, no. It's a constant thing. So you had people that were on OHIP that were there. You had people that were court ordered that had to be there. You had professionals that actually were court ordered as well, or some people like me who put themselves in there. You had younger people whose parents had put them in there. Mm. So old and young, we had like as young as 20 years old to probably 65. So yeah. it didn't matter who you were, what you were, whatever. And I tell you, when you're in there, what you do, where you came from, everything doesn't matter. It it was a complete opposite of what I thought. Well, maybe because I'm a police officer, there's going to be some people in there that don't like police officers, right? Yeah. um, Yeah. There was none of that. There was none of that. It was, I don't know, it was like a pure unsaid respect for everybody because we all were in the same boat. We're all fighting the same disease. I learned so much, though, when I was there, too, because I didn't think that I stereotyped people, right, when I looked at them. But I certainly did, and I don't anymore because I remind myself. Because, for instance, I I was looking at this one woman that was there, and she had tattoos all down her arm. She had sleeves, right? And she had tattoos Mm -hmm. on her legs, and she's wearing cut-off jean shorts and and a, a plaid, you know, shirt with, no arms, right? Uh-huh. Blonde, uh, I don't know, 30s. And I'm like, wow, right? Yeah, like, oh, okay. She looks like she's into drugs or whatever. Like she's a troublemaker maybe or whatever, right? She's a nurse. Wow, yeah, it's amazing. You know what I mean? huh? Like, yeah, we had doctors in there. There were other police, the police officers were very a small amount. I was, I was actually shocked because I'm like, are you kidding? Where are all the cops from all across Canada? Where are all the cops when they're the ones that, like, I know, right? They should be there. Yeah. There was a pocket of us. So when you move from the seven to 10 day detox area, right? Uh, you yeah. move into the area that you're going to be in for the remainder of the, I think it's six weeks. It was a four, no, an eight week program with five weeks. Some people were only there for five weeks, but if you had trauma, they added a three week extra part for trauma. Okay. So I had that. And I have to say it, it was fabulous. It's a lot of group work. It's not individual work, which I thought at first I was like, group work, who want, I want individual attend, which again, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. The group work is so valuable. It's so powerful. And, oh, oh my God. You learn so much from other people's stories and yeah. their struggles. Oh my gosh. It was so good. And they give you input. It's just not one person giving you it, but yeah, we had a addictions counselor too. Like she was on you, giving you problems because there were people who were relapsing sometimes. Right. Yeah. And I mean, they didn't get kicked out of the program, but she wasn't easy on it. It wasn't like, Oh, that's okay. But no, she, she'd lay into them. You know, it's tough love. It is. It's needed. She used to be, she was addicted as well. So she knows from what she speaks of. Do the life. Yeah. Yeah. So she was very good. So that, that section happened. And then that's where I met AA. I've never been to an AA meeting before. Well, now I've been to like so many, I can't count because (laughs) it was a requirement. We went every day, every day. day. Yeah. So Monday to Thursday, they would have the Guelph is a huge recovery town. If you want to recover, go to Guelph. Huge. Okay. There are AA meetings all over the place. So, you know how AA, like they have their own, I don't know what you call them. They're not chapters, but they have their own groups, right? The yeah. names of the groups, depending on where they meet. So they would bring them into 
I might as well say it's Homewood is the name of the place. You can find it easily. They would bring them in there to the auditorium and they would do the AA meetings there. So we didn't have to leave the buildings, but on uh, Friday nights, if you're there, you'd have to go out and do it or Mondays. And then when you're home on the weekend, you're required to go to one on Friday night when you get home and on Saturday. Oh, okay. So you had Sunday off. Yeah. So I, I went, I went six days a week for five weeks and then I continued. So I kept my sobriety. They keep you accountable. You do random P tests. You're in programming all day. It wasn't, I, um, a vacation. No, it's work. They don't give you any free time on purpose, I think, so that they can keep you busy so that you're not thinking about your addictions and what you want, right? So I got through that part and towards the end of it, there was another program. There's many, many programs in in the whole whole facility. So they had a program there called uh, the Post-Traumatic Stress uh, Disorder Recovery Program. Okay. which was another eight weeks. And, and there was a few officers and people that had gone from the addictions over to that. So I made the inquiry, I got approved and all I did was pack my suitcase and move to a different wing of the building and wow. started because I thought I'm here. I do have PTSD. WSIB is willing to pay for this program. I'm in the best place in in Canada. I'm sober now, so I can be able to deal with it because you can't be doing your drugs or alcohol and try to deal with your issue at hand. You can't. can't, No, your mind is not there. And it wasn't. I didn't want anything to do with it. So now I move wings and I hated it. Really? (laughs) For the first part, I was on a cloud nine. Like I was just on a high, like a natural high. Yeah. And I didn't have any medications. I was never on medications, never have been on medications. So, and still during that, I didn't need anything. I could sleep. I could do everything. And then I go over to the PTSD part and then they start delving into all this stuff, right? Start talking and I hated it. And you see a psychiatrist and then all of a sudden I'm put on medications. Hmm. which I've never been on before. And I, even though I didn't want to be on them, I do have to tell you that they did help. They help. Okay. Yeah. Right now, as we now we're on, no, we're not quite two years later, but I'm already, I'm starting to wean off of them, oh, it's wonderful. which is fantastic. I am getting very much better by the day. It's amazing. Great. So while I was in rehab, when I got to go home on the weekends, and that's another thing. I had started, you know, I was told you I always had a side hustle going on, right? But that yeah. kind of fell to the worst side when I got sick. And I'm going to call it sick because I could not, I could not. Uh, like function. When I, when I, oh my God. I, yeah, I couldn't function. And then when I started to get better, when I was in the rehab, I could start, you know, thinking clearly. And now you took my alcohol away. What am I going to drink? Right? So yeah. Started drinking water because I don't drink juice or milk or any of that stuff. I started drinking water, but the water in Guelph is crap like it's it tastes gross and at home I have a water ionizer so when I go home on the weekends I would fill up bags of water and I'd bring it to the rehab and then everybody saw me bringing bags to a water and they were like can you bring me some water so then I started bringing I actually had a pull cart I borrowed from my (laughs) that I would go load my car up and and pull it into the rehab I was like the water girl and I'd drop it off at their doors right? Because it was like, it's like being in a dorm of a college, right? Everybody has a room and there's a nurse's station and stuff. So yeah, I I became the water girl. And then eventually I brought my water ionizer to the rehab. 
<laughs> and I hid it in the bathroom so I could have the water right at my hand. And people would come and fill up the, until I got caught. And then I had to take it away. But I hid it, I hid it, in, the, I hid it in the closet. And then I take it out and hook it up and take the water. It was amazing. <laughs> That's but amazing. The water, I swear to God, the water, this water is ionized water and it it's it's restructured. So the premise of it is that it could hydrate your brain and no other water can hydrate your brain because it, okay. it's not structured that way. So in doing that, the reason it's important is because PTSD and the anxiety, those are brain issues. Oh yeah, definitely. They're mental illnesses. So if your brain isn't hydrated, it's actually dehydrated and actually shrinks and causes you issues, right? Or yeah. there's also a brain blood barrier that gets weakened. And that's when toxins from your blood can go into your brain and such. So when you drink this water that I drink, it was strengthening that blood brain barrier as well as getting oxygen to my brain. So I didn't realize all that because I had bought in the machine like in the summer before, but I didn't drink water because I was drinking alcohol. Right, kind of sitting there until now. Now I start drinking this water, and I can feel my head going all kind of wonky and euphoric, and that's what it does. And that's probably why I was feeling all good on cloud nine in the first eight weeks because I was just piling back the water because it's like that hand to mouth action. Uh Drinking or you're a smoker, and then if you stop, they say you gain weight because you start. Yeah. Yeah. So the water became my what used to be wine and and was working so I finished that part of the PTSD part and then I was home and that's when the hard stuff happened because now there's nobody watching me there's nobody telling me you're on your own now yeah there's nobody saying hey it's time for your pee test now so we can check to see and yeah I'm on my own and this was pre-COVID time so you were free to go to anywhere you wanted to So at the time I had a boyfriend, we had met actually in Guelph and we would go out to eat. And I didn't realize until you stopped drinking how much advertisements there are about booze everywhere. Everywhere. But when I had my patients and and when I worked in psych, they would say heroin, all that other stuff. You got to look for it. But alcohol, it's everywhere. It's He's like, how do you walk away from this drug when it's so easy to get? It was just with your ID. And he would just always like, how am I going to do this? How do I stay sober? Yeah, yeah it's true. I like when we'd go out to eat because now eating became like exciting, right? Because what else do you have? Yeah. <laughs> so it used to be alcohol. Everything surrounded alcohol. But as soon as you go in it, like either there's a big billboard of chalk with all the drink specials or the waitress comes over with drink menus or there's already drink menus on the table. It just seemed... Everything is booze related. So that was really hard. It was really hard. And he helped me through that. And that's one thing we didn't last. Uh, And I often look back at that and go, well, what was that all about, God? Right? Like, why did that happen? Because since I had asked for his help, I just let him control. I was just open to letting God control me. and, And I know God. God told me one day at the rehab to ask him out. To ask oh. him out. I don't, I've never asked a man out in my whole entire life, right? Yeah. So we used to go for morning walks, not me and him, but the whole group, right? In the morning. So in the morning, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this because God told me to do it. I don't know why, but I didn't do it. So 
and I'd known him as an acquaintance, right? So I go, hey, when this is all over, would you like to go out? Because I knew he was going to be living around the area of where I lived. And he said, sure. And it didn't wait until after rehab. We were like a couple right away. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I look back though, God put him in my life to keep me sober. Because he knew I would need somebody when I got out of rehab. Because I'm telling you, I know I was weak. You would have gone back. I was weak. I wasn't ready to be on my own. I needed, yeah, you can't, I think I've been drinking since I was 15. Let's just say 16 weeks. I don't think was going to cure me from alcoholism completely, you know, in the real world, but he helped me. And then ironically he relapsed. Oh yeah. So that ended our relationship and then I was on my own. But by that time I had gotten stronger you know, yeah. like as time goes on. So I got stronger an hour before Christmas and Christmas was a very bad day. Cause I mentioned that other young lady that I had a flashback to. Yeah. Her death was on boxing day. Oh. And since every, every Christmas I have a bad Christmas and that Christmas was the worst. That Christmas was, I was alone firstly, yeah. right? Not good. And I, I just, I had the dread I had the dread come and I, I realized that because I I've had police friends that have taken their lives. Right. And you know, when you hear about those things, you often wonder how bad was it? How bad was it that they had to do what they did to to do that? Cause I couldn't fathom it at the, at the time. And, but now I can, now I know because that feeling of dread and that's the only way I can explain it. It didn't, it, I was like, if I have to feel this, for much longer, I, I can't live. I cannot live. Yeah. Like give me something to make this go away. That's how awful, awful feeling it is. And and then I realized this is what people who take their lives feel. Yeah. They, they, there's no relief from it. There's no relief from it. And the only relief is to end your life. And that scared me because I wanted to live. You want to live, yeah. That, but I, I couldn't live with that feeling. So getting back to my doctors soon after, they rejigged my medications and stuff. And then I got over Christmas and then the real healing began. So that would have been all last year. So get this. I decided to sell my house after rehab because I couldn't deal with it anymore. I couldn't yeah. deal with the maintenance of it. I was just overwhelmed. So I'm never, I'm not better. I'm overwhelmed. I couldn't, couldn't, I couldn't type an email without doing a mistake. I couldn't complete one task. It would take me hours to get one thing done. I would get lost driving. Like simple things where you think you're losing your mind just became normal to me. I would go, okay, Kim, give yourself a break. Laugh it off. You're not at work anyway, so you don't have to make any big decisions. Things will hopefully get better. Yeah. <laughs> I could say. And I did everything the doctors were telling me. I was going to them, going to them. So... As things moved on and the months went on and I would sign up myself, I would go to retreats, PTSD retreats, right? With the badge of life who've been a lifesaver. They're an organization that, you know, I got involved with to try and be around other women who were suffering the same stuff to relate that way, you know, yeah. Uh, going to AA. So I'm still sober during all this time. I'm going to workshops, doing a lot of meditation work. Okay. Learning about how to be present, yeah. Learning about how to deal with those feelings and being able to not want to run to go make them go away because I've got to feel it. 
yeah. I have to feel you it and to. know that it's going to be okay. Not the dread. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. the dread part, but just, just the normal, like just the icky feeling, right? Just the normal everyday stuff that people go through that some do still go, I need a drink, right? Yeah. Well, they, I don't have that option. So I need to deal with what was happening with the yeah. tools that I learned. I learned a lot of stuff when I was at rehab and then I learned more stuff when I've been out with the doctor different ways to deal with different situations exactly instead of losing my my cool with people or being impatient take a breath count to four up hold for four come down for four think and it's so true if you take a step back before you lash out you're not going to want to lash out anymore exactly once you do it you can't take it back no it's out there it's done the damage is done and you probably got to say sorry anyways, right? And say, yeah. oh, I, I was whatever your, your excuses. But yeah, so I learned to do that. And it's so much better. It's such a better life because when you get angry at people, the conflict causes, causes anxiety. It really and, does. Yeah. And stress. And I don't like that feeling. Mm-hmm. And when you're just open and you love everybody and you accept them, it just makes life so much better. And you're forgiving and you realize that, hey, you're not perfect either. You're not always right. It's basically being a better person. And I thought I was an okay person before, but now, I mean, I wasn't an awful person, but I'm a much better person now, personally. And my empathy is back. I can feel, I cry. Like I, I never cried so much in my life in the last year. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. It was like crocodile tears, right? And now I just let it happen because... It makes me human. Yes, and it does. It's a good thing, and it gets it out, you know? So the, as the months went by, up until last November, I, I could feel it. I could feel every month that I was getting better and stronger, and this thing was getting a little better, you know? I wasn't getting lost as much. Yeah. <laughs> maybe type a sentence out. It, maybe I could finish a task, you know? And then in November, that just passed, I swear to you, I'd already made a decision. I'd already accepted Jesus Christ as my savior in the December before, because my landlord, when I sold my house, I'm renting. My landlord is devout Christian. And we did that together. And then COVID hit. Oh yeah. I was in this house, my new rent for two weeks and COVID hit. So I'm trying to stay sober, right? Yeah. I just hard. my dream house because I can't mentally take care of it anymore. And COVID hits. I'm like, are you for real? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. So, but blessed, right? I had what I needed. Like the rental fell into my lap. I needed a place to live because I tried to buy two house, three houses and the inspections fell through. So I, then I, because I'm, I was losing my mind because I was still in that stress mode. I just said, no, okay, I can't do this. I have to rent and figure out things, right? It was a godsend. I got a beautiful three-bedroom townhouse from my friend that I know. His mother loves me and is happy that I'm in her home of 28 years. Even wrote a note for me in the house, and I have it framed, saying she's so happy that somebody as nice and kind as me has her home and that she hopes Jesus watches over us while we're here. So this house is a blessed house. Everything just kind of fell into place. And then in November, I got baptized. And the first week of November, I had to wait. I was the first COVID baptism in my church. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And with the mask on and everything. And then my pastor got COVID two weeks later. (laughs) Wasn't for me. But I tell you, I'm going to tell you something. (sighs) 
I know what happened. I can't say I don't know what happened, but I know what happened. I'm telling you, when I got baptized, everything changed. Everything. I felt, yeah, everything, like it just got better. Like everything just got, it was like I woke up and went, oh my God, my head is back and it's hungry. I need to learn. I need to educate myself. I want to take a class. I want to do this. I want it because I couldn't, I couldn't couldn't do any of that. It would have been a perfect time. I'm off. Right. I couldn't, nothing, nothing would stay there. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like, and I'm not, I'm trying, I don't want to insult. I'm not being rude, but I felt dumb. Like I felt like my, my, like somebody pulled my brains out because I couldn't do much do it yeah but moving forward after the the november the baptism it was like and then i signed up for a a personal coaching course right so i could work on me more you know and that was with oh he's he's wonderful coach noel walrund He, he does it online now it used to be in person so i did his course online i loved it i could relate to what he was saying so much that I took it again. <laughs> so there's two and then he does it again and you know, new people. I did it again because you know when you learn something first time? Yeah. You know, but when you do it a second time, it, it really affects. Yeah. You're learning on a different level. So I did it a, a second time. And let me tell you, he called me and asked me to be an assistant leader. Oh, that's wonderful. So right now I'm doing his course his course again as a accountability leader. Which that's yeah, amazing. which is I was honored. I was honored to go from where I was to where I am now. And in that time, I decided because the water, right? The, I love the water and yeah. I know what to do for people with their health, with everything. And that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. I had been in service for 30 years doing policing and I want to continue being of service to people, but I'm going to do it in a different capacity that doesn't affect my mental health. I hear you. Yeah. I'm around people now that are the same mindset, but most of them, they don't drink because we all drink the water. I wouldn't care if you drank or not, but it's nice to be around people who don't drink, you know, exactly. because I have no desire to be around drunk people anymore. Like annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't right. Like, uh, yeah, you, I used to think, what am I going to do without alcohol? I didn't think that you could have fun. I honestly didn't know how I would live. That, that was how sick I was. And now I'm the total opposite. Now I'm just like, Ooh, I, I don't need it. I'm not judging anybody, but I don't need it. And it's amazing how now when I'm around people that are my friends that drink and I don't care, but they feel the need to tell me that, oh, I just do this on the weekends or, oh, I'm just having one bottle or I'm just having two. I'm not your liquor license, you know. Yeah, I'm not judging you. Yeah. But it's funny how my not drinking affects people that drink. It yeah. makes them feel uncomfortable. It makes them question their drinking mm-hmm. it was very weird. Yeah. but as a result now my sister stopped drinking oh wow um, yeah I've had a lot of people around me decide they're not going to drink and I'm like wow what's happening you know like <laughs> that's great I'm happy for you but like how come so I don't know it, it's great and everything is just opening oh I retired I decided to do that that's what I did I retired because I went you know what I have faith in me and I know God wouldn't have put me in this position I think he's saying you need to keep sharing this information about the water with people follow that I'm here with you get rid of the police I I still was being paid with for them I was off right yeah and I was feeling better and the doctors knew that and I knew that and I told them so we talked about me going back to work like part-time 
Mm-hmm. So that was a choice. It was either I'm going to go back to work part-time or I could leave and retire. And I went, I don't want to go back there ever. I don't want to go back there ever. Yeah. Because it's not, it's not that I would be put in the line of duty where I would be put in a place where maybe I, I wouldn't be out doing stuff. I would be at a desk job, but I would still be in that environment. Yeah. And I don't want to be anymore. You know what? When this came back, when my brain came back, yeah. this is the most important thing in the world that this is back and it feels really healthy and good. I still have moments of the anxiety, but I used the tools that I learned to subside. because it, it, there was a time when I'd go run to take some pills. Yeah. You know? Not now. I go, no, you don't need those. Use your tools because I'm trying to get off those pills and I'm getting there. I'm almost. That's I'm wonderful, almost Ken. Them, which, yeah. So, because I, I don't want to be on pills. They're, yeah, I hear you. And I'm, I'm so happy now that I'm like, I'm so happy and blessed because from where I came from, I don't wish that on anybody. And I understand. Yeah. So that's me. That's Your my. Story is amazing. Are you going to write a book? Actually, I did. I wrote, it's not coming out until June. I wrote two chapters in a book called Women Empowering Women to Succeed. Wow. Uh, Legacy. So I wrote two chapters in that book, and I'm also writing in another upcoming book that's going to come out at the end of December. It's going to be a beautiful coffee table version, again, from Women Empowering uh, Women wow. to Succeed. But this one is featuring 20, 20 women only as leaders, and I've been asked to write in that. So I'm thrilled. Randy Goodman is the um, publisher of that. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. I have just let God, I know that people go, what do you mean you let God take your will over? You're still walking to the store. You're still like, no, I'm hungry. I go downstairs. It's not God telling me go downstairs. It's very hard to explain if you haven't surrendered to him. Exactly. Yes, I am making decisions, but I I talk to him. He's like my boyfriend. I I laugh. I go, man, I got rid of all the men in my life, and now I gotta I gotta answer to him. I gotta ask him questions. I want to answer, right? I'm like what? Come on, man. <laughs> but my my landlord, who's who you know is the devout critic, he goes, Kim, that's your relationship with Jesus, and if it takes him ten months to answer you, you wait ten months. I'm like. Doesn't he know I'm on a time clock? Because every time I make a decision, it's got to be like, you know, by tomorrow or by next week. I go, I don't got 10 months. When's he going to tell me? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so true. You're like, oh, my gosh. Time is like nothing to God. But for us, it's like, ah, you know. That's right. And the answer to that is, well, if he does take 10 months, then something will happen that that deal doesn't have to happen in two days. It will happen in 10 months. Yeah. That's, that was his answer to it. And I'm like. Okay. <laughs> so now I, I talk to God. I, I ask him my big decisions, just like, you know, you t- well, I never asked my husband nothing before. Anyways, I would just do it. That's why it's so hard for me to consult him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then I'll go, but can you hurry it up? Because I don't have a lot of time. I, get- <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and so far he's not led me astray at all. Like there, and I've had to make some really big freaking decisions that kind of make my stomach sick right like yeah money decisions especially in covid right like oh my but i go you know what okay so what if i do this and what if i lose all my money because covid and they talk about some big financial crash coming and real estate crash and all this stuff right i'm like well you know what 
I never had any money to start out with, so it doesn't matter. And the only reason I want to make money is so I can do good stuff with it. Yeah. Like I want to do a charity. I want to be able to, to do, to be productive with it. Like I don't need anything more. Like I don't need anything more than a, a bedroom, a, a kitchen, barely a kitchen. I microwave really. I don't yeah. And um, an office would be nice and a bathroom. You don't need a lot of space. Mm-mm. You don't need a lot of stuff. Stuff is just stuff. When you have stuff, you just buy a bigger house to put the stuff in. And then if exactly. you, buy crap, you don't have stuff, you put stuff in it. You buy furniture just to fill a room and you couldn't afford it. Like it's stupid. It really, really is stupid. Why? So that you can invite your friends over and go, look what I have. Well, meanwhile, you're working 24 seven because you've overextended yourself and can't afford and can't enjoy it. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so I know that. And I know that he will not even like, if he takes everything away from me, he's, he's saying, Kim, you can handle that. I don't want you to have all that stuff. You don't need it. You know? So I just, I can't worry about it. Whatever's going to happen with this crazy world right now is going to happen. Exactly. And, and God's going to know about it or he'll have his hand in it in some, some way. Right. And it's all going to work out. Like it, it's, it's all going to work out. That's awesome. Kim, your story is amazing. And I could talk to you all day, but my time's going to run out. Oh my gosh. Okay. This is great. Oh my gosh. I am so glad that you reached out to me and that I found you and I'm, I cannot wait to share your story with the rest of my listeners. They're going to absolutely love this. Where can they find you, your website and all that? You can go to www.crazywatergirls.com. I love that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And, or you can, well, I, yeah, that's, that's the website. So if somebody wants to contact me by email, again, it's, it's crazywatergirls at gmail.com. Awesome. And I'd be glad to talk to anybody and answer any questions in regards to anything. I'm a pretty open book and I can be very chatty, <laughs> but I know my story will help people. Oh yes. And I know he, he, he didn't put me through it. I put myself through it, but there was a reason for it all. That's why I don't, I don't, I'm not resentful anymore. I was mad yeah. because I felt, well, my career was done. Okay. Yeah. You know, I worked so hard. Uh, I just finished my master's. And then I, and then I, and then this happens, right? Like it wasn't my plan. This was yeah. not my plan, but it, but this, this wasn't, that's that exactly what I said. My plan. That's not, it, God has a different plan for me. Amen. And I'm what I'm supposed to be doing right now. This is so great. All right. Thank you so much. Hi guys. Wasn't that just a wonderful interview? I loved hearing her story and her openness about addiction and where God has taken her out of that. I just love talking to Kim. It was so refreshing and so great. And funny story, that night, I wasn't even sure the interview was going to happen. We don't get a lot of thunderstorms in California. And that night, as I was coming home, big, loud thunderstorm. I'm like, are you serious? I live in an apartment that is from the 1940s. And so insulation wasn't big back then. And so any noise from outside gets in here. Like I usually record like in a corner away from like the windows and doors so I can get like the best sound I possibly can in my old apartment. Sometimes I'm under a blanket. And so that night I'm like, how am I going to drown a thunderstorm? Like, okay, God, like this is going to happen. I need this not to, to stop. I love storms, but not right now. And sure enough, the storm stopped and I got to hear her awesome testimony. So it was really cool. I love talking to Ken and I will put all her info in the show notes. So my three asks, 
Ask number one is share the episode. If you hear something today that you think would benefit another person, go ahead and share the episode with a friend. You can share on iTunes, on Spotify, via email, also on my little Buzzsprout website. You can also share that way, sharing that link, and it has all the episodes listed. You can share the episode that way. It gets the word about the podcast out. I so very much appreciate that. So share the episode. Second is ratings. If you love what you heard today and you want to give me some feedback on the show, leaving ratings on iTunes is a great way for me to know what you're loving, what I need to work on. So ratings, love them, appreciate them. Thank you to all of you guys who've left ratings. And then finally, subscribe. Still working on that website. Hopefully in August that will be done. But you can subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio. I'm trying to think of all the places. Anywhere you listen to a podcast, you can subscribe. And if you want to get on my email list, that's where I kind of share stories of what's going on with me, what's going on with the podcast, about our creative collective group that we've just started with a bunch of my friends getting together and learning how to be business people and creatives. It's been really fun. And I hope to get that more open for people in the future. Yeah, if you want to know all about that, the way to do that is to get on the email list. And the way to sign up for the email list right now is just to email me. My email is apeachincali at gmail.com. That is A-P-E-A-C-H-I-N-C-A-L-I at gmail.com. Just shoot me an email and say, hey, Alexis, I want to be on the email list. I will put you on my MailChimp listserv and then you will get emails about the podcast thank you guys so much for tuning in i appreciate you so much and i'll see you guys in august have a wonderful summer bye